Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? All right. Let's do this. Lord, today by faith, we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We are no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give God praise this morning? Lord, I pray today that you be with our pastor as he brings this word. Lord, we believe you're setting us up for something great this year, Lord. We pray we'd be obedient, Lord. I pray you'd help our pastor as he guides this congregation and these leaders and these kingdom servants, God. We pray you would just bless this word and anoint it and use it to further your kingdom. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Zach. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning. I tell you, our fasting time has really paid off and things are moving and things are shaking and we're hearing testimonies about what God's doing in the lives of people all over the place. We want to thank you for your commitment to get behind leadership for the fasting time of the 21 days in January. If you want to continue that, feel free to continue that because I want to tell you, God is honoring it. God is doing some great things. You know, I, lo I love the body of Christ. Don't you? Don't you love the body of Christ? Do you love your church? If you do, give the Lord praise for that right now. Amen. Love this body. Love this people. Brother Denny, you know, you got to pray for Brother Denny Smothers. He's got such a diverse Sunday school class. I heard the other day that he was preaching on prophecy and he was all excited and he was pumped up and he was talking about Israel being the super sign of the end time and their role and he was talking about how the tribulation is not the church's problem, it's Israel's problem, it's Jacob's trouble and he was laying it out, man, and he was just having him a wonderful time and he was pumped. And he was saying, I want to see what the rest of the body knows. He said, Chuck, what do you think about Russia in the end time? And old Chuck Lambert jumped up and said, man, that's the old bear. That's Russia. And it's going to come down. And, and he starts laying it out of what Russia's role is in the end time. And they looked at Bill Marvin. He said, Bill, what do you think about Iran? And old Bill jumped up and said, well, Iran. And he starts laying out the end time of what Iran's going to do. And then he looked at Bud Middleton. He said, Bud Middleton, what do you think about Red China? And he said, well... I think it's fine as long as it don't clash with the tablecloth. <laughs> That's when you got a diverse Sunday school class, isn't it? Amen. Would everybody pray for Bud Middleton? Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter 4, and you can remain seated today for the reading of the word. But 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 12. You can read it with me up on the screen. Then we want to apologize for having a little bit of computer problems this morning. That's just glitches that you have once in a while. And we do apologize that, but they got it up and running, Alan. We're thankful. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceedingly joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on our part he is glorified. We as believers often find ourselves in what Peter describes as fiery trials of our faith, don't we? And it is here in the midst of what we call trial and conflict, temptations, tests, hardships, that many times you and I, if we'll be honest, we question why. Why am I going through this? We simply sometimes do not understand why that we find ourselves in such difficult places, especially as us being the children of God. It is in the heat of the moments of trial that we sometimes even wonder, where is our God at? Where is he at? It seems like that when we need him the most, he's not there. We look around and it seems like he's not answering prayer. Have you ever been there? Has it ever felt like that God has abandoned you, that God is not always there as you call upon his name? And sometimes we'll even say, "Why, God, why are you allowing us to go through this? I just don't understand. And if we would all be honest, there have been times in our lives that when our faith is being tested that we all have had to deal with that one thing called abandonment. Are we going to continue? Are we going to keep keeping on? Are we going to keep the faith? Or are we going to finally just kind of slide out? Are we going to 
kind of back up? Are we going to kind of let down? We've all faced that. I have faced it. You have faced it. And it won't be the last time that you and I will face those kinds of things. But sometimes we feel that we need to have more of an explanation than just a command to trust Jesus. You hear people all the time when you're going through, oh, just trust the Lord. And then you have Romans 8 and 28 quoted to you a lot. For we know that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and to them who are the called according to his purpose. But I want to tell you something. That's easy to say, but I want to tell you sometimes them kinds of answers seem to be so vague and empty <clears throat> with no real substance when you're the one that is going through the fiery furnace. When you're the one going through it, people can say, oh, just trust Jesus. Oh, just, you know, well, you know, all things work together for the good. And you're standing there thinking, yeah, but you're not the one that's going through it. If God loves us like scripture says, and if he cares over us as his sheep and as his people, then why do bad things happen to us? Why do we got to go through some of the things that we go through? Why don't he shield and protect us from harm's way? And why do we have to face fiery trials? Why do we have to go through trying valleys? Why do we have to experience painful afflictions? And why does it seem like that God is hidden and quiet in our most trying moments of life when we need him the most? When we need him the most, he seems that he's just simply not there. Why do bad things happen to godly people like David? David was a man after God's own heart. And it was David that even asked these kinds of questions in the midst of his trial. Look what he said in Psalm 6, 2 through 7. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak, he says. O Lord, heal me, my bones are vexed. My soul is also vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? How long is this going to go on? He's just questioning. And then he says, return. Now listen to that. He is recusing God of being elusive or being gone. He's saying, you've not been with me. You've not heard me. You've not been around. He said, would you return back to me? Have you ever felt like that? That God is elusive with you and he's not there? But folks, the truth of the matter is God never leaves you, nor does he ever forsake you. How many knows that? God is right there. When you think he's a four off, he's standing right by your side. But David felt that way. And he said, return as if God had went on a trip. And he says, oh Lord, deliver my soul. Oh, save me from my, my, for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who is going to give thee thanks? I am weary with my groanings. All the night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. My eyes is consumed because of grief. It waxed old. And then he tells you why. All because of my enemies. He talks about him having real enemies. But notice, would you believe that this man is a man of God, one after God's own heart, and listen to the description of the things that he goes through. David was saying, I cry all night long. My bed is wet from my tears during the night, and my couch is a place of mourning all the day long. He said, I'm depressed. He said, I've become a couch to potato God. He said, I'm afraid. I'm confused. I'm hurting, and I'm concerned that I might even die. Now, this is the great man David. And can I remind you, Lord, he said, there's no remembrance of thee in death. And if I die, who's going to give you thanks? In other words, if I die, I'm not going to be able to praise you. If I die, I'm not going to be able to give you thanks. He said, what glory is that going to be? And then he says, how are you going to get any glory out of me dying? He's thinking that he might even die. And David expressed his concern in a most unusual way by saying, I am vexed. That is a strong word. To be vexed means to be frustrated and annoyed. And David was saying, I am frustrated and I am annoyed as a man of God that this is going on in my life. How many of you have ever been frustrated? How many of you have ever been annoyed? You know, and do you really know the meaning of those words? Because this means that David was slightly angry and irritated at what was going on. He said, I'm mad. I'm upset. I don't understand. I'm annoyed. I'm irritated. Unhealthy attitude was beginning to form and develop in David's life as a result of his trial. His wording began to show us how he really felt and the cause of his attitude. David was feeling this due to him feeling inadequate to do anything about it. He had the ability, he didn't have the inability to change what was going on and it frustrated him. His frustration was due to him being prevented to progress and to succeed. So David was expressing what was going, what he was going through was robbing him of success. He said, hey, this trial that I'm going through, it's robbing me from being successful. It's robbing me from progressing. It's robbing me for excelling. How many of you ever felt like that? 
And yet it was Peter in our text that told us to rejoice, to magnify God in the midst of our trial. David was feeling like his trial was robbing him of success, but here Peter was expressing that there was victory in the midst of trial. Now, I want to ask you the I want to ask you a question. What was the difference between these two attitudes of these two men and what was the cause of it? What was the reason for all the suffering, trial, and hardship in the first place? Well, we do know that the scripture tells us in John 15 and 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me as well, first. It hated me before it hated you. And then in Luke 6 and 22, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and sp- spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then he says in 1 John 15 and 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, the world therefore hates you. In 1 John 3 and 13, John wrote, do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. And then in Matthew 10, 22, the Bible says, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end the same shall be saved. I could quote untold numerous more scriptures than what I have about you being hated just for Christ's sake. And we know that some suffering comes just simply due to us being a Christian, that you and I are associated with Christ and as a result of association, we are hated by the world. We also know that some suffering is caused by our own making, by our own sin, and by our own bad choices in life. David also experienced that. Listen to what he says in Psalms 38. Hold with me, I'm building a case, I'm building a sermon. Psalms 38, one through six, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, you're mad at me. For thy arrows stick fast to me, and thy hand presseth me sore, you're really pouring on the conviction and the correction. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thy anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of, here it is, my sins. For my, here it is again, iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and they are corrupt because, and here it is, of my own foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I do mourn all the day long. Now his mourning is caused for a different reason. It was caused because of his own wrongdoing. It was caused because of his own sin. And there are some things that we face simply due to our actions and our behavior being outside of the scope of the will of God for our lives. In 1 Peter 3 and 17, the Bible says, for it is better to suffer for God, for, excuse me, it is better to suffer for good if it be the will of God than to suffer for evil. And this is what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 15. But let none of us suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. And he goes on and on and on. In other words, God gets no glory out of our suffering if it's caused by our own selves. That God ain't gonna get glory out of you going out here and doing something stupid and you suffering for that. That does not give God any glory whatsoever. This is why that Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. This is why that Peter also said in 1 Peter 3, 14, if you suffer for righteous sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of the terror, nor neither be troubled. In other words, if you're suffering for righteous sake, you don't have anything to worry about. You don't have to worry about the outcome because the outcome is always going to be into your favor. Can I have an amen? And those of you that are suffering for righteous sake, it's just seasonal. And these things will come. They're going to come. Offenses must come according to Luke chapter 2. But we come to the conclusion that we suffer simply because we're associated with Christ, number one. And number two, we also suffer due to our own decisions and behavior. And then there's a third cause. We suffer because of nature. Things just naturally happen. Sometimes you get a cold and it's a natural thing. It's not spiritual. You just get a cold. A tornado comes. Sometimes it hits your house. It's a natural disaster. Things like that happen as well. So we understand there are three things that is revealed in scripture of the reason why you suffer. But can I tell you, there's more of an underlining truth that, that we miss if we think that these are all there is to, to our suffering. We miss the biblical mandate and blessing behind suffering if this is all that we come to know and embrace about the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Sufferings has a greater call and a dimension to it than this, and it exists for a greater cause. Can I tell you, there is reasons behind your suffering. Look at somebody says, there's reasons behind your suffering. Can I have an amen? 
And I hope that we're going to be suffering for the right kind of suffering before we're over here today. It was Peter that said in 1 Peter 1, 21, I'm about to, I'm about to get happy. Are you about to get happy? And I'm talking about suffering. Woo, isn't that wonderful? Praise the name of the Lord. I'm suffering. Glory to God. How many of us really have that kind of an attitude? And yet that's what Peter tells us to do. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Not some of the time, always. And again, I say rejoice. He reminds us of it. And we're to rejoice in all things. Amen. And yet Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 21, for even until were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his footsteps. That you and I are to follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ in the midst of his sufferings. And if you and I are suffering for the same kind of reasons that Jesus suffered, we are doing well and that you and I will be blessed. And we're going to get into that. But we don't understand suffering because we don't understand the true working and the dimension of the spirit concerning the church. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. It is here that we see that we as believers are called into Christ's sufferings in 1 Peter 1.21. And it was Jesus that told Ananias. You remember what he told Ananias? I want you to go lay hands on a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus that he might begin to see. We know the whole story where remember Saul was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christian and he ran into Jesus Christ. And a bright light appeared and it blinded Saul and he fell off of his horse. A voice came up and said, Saul, Saul, whom uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it was there that Saul replied back, who are you, Lord, that I persecute? And then a voice came back and said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecuteth. And Ananias said, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he's done in the saints of Jerusalem, Lord. And he has authority from the chief priest. He reminds the Lord of this to bind all that call upon the name of the Lord. And you want me to go lay hands on this man? In other words, he's arrested and jailed, persecuted, and even it has been possible that the apostle Paul by his own hands has murdered Christians for the sake of Christ. And you're wanting me to go down here and bless this man? Are you sure you got the right guy? He may be blinded, but if I go down there and he becomes healed, I can be arrested, I can be stoned, I can be in jail, I can be put in prison, I can, I can even be killed. And it is here that we see Ananias uh, kind of balking or hesitating to go bless this man that God has commanded him to bless. But God speaks to him in Acts chapter 9, and this is what he says. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, it is here that we see the transformation of this man by the name of Saul unto the man that you and I know as what? The Apostle Paul. And the Bible says that the Apostle Paul was shown at his conversion of all of the great things that he must suffer for Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. The day that you got saved, would you stay saved if you, God would have revealed everything that you would have ever went through? Oh, my goodness. I would have tucked tail and ran. I would have said, huh, you mean this is what I'm buying into? A lot of times when we come to the cross, we got this concept, when I come down and get saved, everything's going to be a bed of roses. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be grand. Everything's going to be glorious. Only for us as we mature and develop in our faith, and God won't allow you to be tempted or tried more than you're able to bear. So he allows the temptations, the trials, and different things come our way as we are able to handle it. But the truth of the matter is, that's the furthest thing from the truth, that if you get saved, everything is going to be all right. Now, everything will be all right in a spiritual sense, and there are spiritual benefits and blessings in order for us to be saved. I love what the psalmist said in Psalms 103 and 3, and 1 through 3, bless the Lord, and oh, my soul, and forget not his benefits. There are benefits in serving the Lord. How many know that? One of them is eternal life. Woo-hoo! Praise the name of the Lord. But sometimes I think we fail to see the full theology of the cross of Jesus Christ and what our salvation's all about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I hope I pronounced his name right, he was a German preacher, born 1906, and he preached in the time of the Nazis in Germany, and he preached against the Nazis, and they took him, arrested him, put him in a concentration camp, and there he wrote a lot of literature, and there he suffered hideously at the hands of the Germans, and he preached to the Jews, and he preached to the Germans, he preached to anybody that would listen to him, thousands of people were saved by his ministry, they say, and he died in a concentration camp at the age of 39 years old. How many 39 or above? You're blessed. Hello? 
How can that happen? A man of God preaching the gospel, standing up against Nazism, being thrown in a uh, a prison, a concentration camp, suffering hideously, starving him to death, beating him and whipping him. And how can that be the will of God for a child of God? Come on, somebody help me preach. But yet he was bold and he rejoiced. And he's one of the most, most uh, real men that you'll ever meet in his writings. Some of his writings are preserved. It's unbelievable when you begin to read about his, his uh, experiences and, and everything was detailed in his books and in his writings about how that he rejoiced and how he magnified God. It's just like when the disciples were beaten and they come back and they were praising the Lord that they were worthy to receive stripes on their back. And yet we cry over a worship machine tearing up. Oh, we're under a hideous burden, the car. It tore up. The dog died. And the cat scratched me. Come on now. We have become a weak, frail people because we truly do not understand the theology of the cross. Oh, help me preach right here. Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. Whew, I'm glad my name ain't German. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. And it's for this cause that he came to bring peace to the very enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered, sheltered life, but in the thick foes. This is his commission, his work. The kingdom of God is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be in the kingdom of Christ, but he wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, he said, for if Christ had done what you're doing, who would have ever been spared? Man, that's convicting, isn't it not? It was Richard Warmbrand that said this, whoever wishes to meet Jesus must meet him in places where brothers and sisters of Jesus and the sinners, where they are hungry, thirsty, naked, unwanted, sick, are imprisoned. Whoever keeps himself distanced from these places, they really remain distanced from Jesus. Now, I want you to think of that. Whoever refrains from being in places like this is literally being distant from Jesus. How many want to be in the presence of God? Come on, somebody say, how many want to be in the presence of God? then you got to follow where he leads and you got to go where he goes. And this is what this man was saying. It was Martin Luther that literally proposed two theological paths for us as believers to follow. We choose one way or the other and one can be destructive and the other one can be quite beneficial. Number one, the first theology that he proposed was that the theology of glory, which is one of strength and dominance. It's one of power and privilege, one of control and command. And this is the one that it seemed like that the American church culture has bought into. That we got to become authoritative. We got to be commanding. We got we to be in charge. And, 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 and any kind of suffering or any kind of uh, of. Uh, 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 not succeeding or going forward is a sign of weakness. Come on now. And this posture of glory or theology of glory, it elevates man and puts him on a high pedestal saying, the anointed one. Look, the powerful one. Look, the gifted one. And then those who are not as talented or gifted, they're looked upon as the lesser, the sideliner, the back of the line people, the last pick, the bench warmers, the servants, and they think their job is to do nothing but to serve leadership. Their job is to serve the leadership. In other words, if it, what it comes down to, that the, the theology of glory is this, that they think that apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists are held in high esteem while regular saints are looked, up at, looked at as the lesser. The theology of glory posters in power and not weakness. It demands more than it serves, and, and it want a power, want a dominance, want a strength, want a privilege, want of control, and want of authority. So the church then finds itself, if it's not careful, serving the privileged and the upper elite. Now watch. As a matter of fact, there's a sect of leadership in a lot of churches around America. Their whole concept is this. If you give and you serve leadership as a congregation, you'll be blessed. How many see that? 
Come on. There's a segment of truth to that. Come on. And that's what the devil loves to do is mingle with half-truths. He's very good at twisting truth. He'll take something that's true and then distort it, magnify it, and get it out of context, and it no longer becomes relative to what the real Bible says. And this is, even though it's a segment of truth, it is, it is not the truth in the degree which the people are framing it, are posturing it. Now watch what I mean. I heard a prominent woman preaching. If I named her name, you would know it. But she's preaching the other day, and our whole message is about the body of Christ embracing her ministry and giving to her so she can travel the world and do ministry. Now watch this. She said, you need to keep giving unto me so I can keep prophesying, so I can keep preaching, so I can keep reaching, so I can tear down walls, so I can keep casting out devils. And she's building this sermon and she's very charismatic and the place is going wild. And she's talking about her travels and all the things that's being done. And bless God, the church needs to cater to her, to give to her, and she'll do the work of the ministry. Her net worth has become somewhere about 500 times more than the normal saint sitting on the pew. And not only that, she's probably worth, I don't know, I don't know her net worth, but more than what you and I would ever be worth in probably two or three or five or ten lifetimes. And we see others having the same mentality. We're seeing ministers rising up, getting fame, getting a name, having private planes and having three and four and five different houses around the United States. I'm not against success. I'm not even against that. If they work hard and they earn it, praise the name to it, but I don't like the concept behind it. Are you listening to me? There are whole empires built around the premise of raising up spiritual superstars. And there is also this concept in the church is I want to be one of those. And their target is to try, their whole ambition is to try to rise to the cream of the crop in the church. And they look at that as spiritual advancement. Be careful. Because it ain't spiritual advancement. And I'm going to show you that. The mentality of the church is to gather with such people, these superstars, so that you can experience in their service this so-called glory of God. The concept, I believe, is through these people's anointing and services that they will manifest the glory of God to you. That's the American way of life. That's the American culture that you and I are living in. Hang with me. The Western church, us as Americans, theology has become a triumphant overcoming posture. We're attracted to power. We're attracted to authority. We're attracted to success. We're really attracted to fame and popularity. Come on. And a lot of people think if I'm not popular, I'm not successful. Some people think if I don't have fame in the name, I've not succeeded. That is farthest thing from biblical truth of anything that I've ever heard or seen before. Hey, this ought to be making you happy. Amen. I'm sure not got no fame. Amen. I make up half of my words. But I want to tell you one thing. I must be one anointed dude because you know what I mean. Either that or you're just as stupid as I am. Come on, somebody help me preach right here. But this concept is where the church serves its leadership instead of serving the mission and the mandate of the church. It mobilizes a group of talented, gifted, and creative people, and though they're honored and respect and esteemed, and they should be, there's nothing wrong with that until you take it too far. I don't need someone carrying my briefcase, and I sure don't need someone standing around me wiping my forehead when I sweat. I can do that myself. For heaven's sakes. And you see that kind of stuff happening, don't you? And you see things happening when you call somebody, hey, can you come and preach? Sure, but I got to have a limousine pick me up at the airport. And I got to have a room, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So what does it do? It mobilizes leadership. And then leadership is highly esteemed and regarded. And they should be esteemed, but not to the point of where people are doing it. And yet, not even realizing it, it has created a hiring mentality in the body of Christ. This is why that pastors and church leaders and elders find themselves wore out due to everything revolves around them. 
Everything's placed upon their shoulders. You've got to make it happen. And the mentality of the church is, this is what we pay you to do. Woo, it's getting quiet. This is taking the mission off the church. It's put it on a few talented, gifted, and high creative people. And it has destroyed the true theology of the cross and its purpose. The true theology of the cross is that the believer himself can go out and prophesy. He can go out and preach. He can go out and reach. He can go out and cast out devils. Can I have an amen? This thing about anointing ain't just for the leader, it's for you. This thing about housing the glory of God isn't about a few elite good people that's got the privilege of having God's anointing. I'm here to tell you, every single body that's been born again into the kingdom of God are children of God anointed and empowered and important for the cause of the kingdom of God. Oh, Lord, help me. I don't even know where I'm at now. The job of leadership isn't to reach the world. Sheep beget sheep. Leaders don't. It is our job to equip, to develop, commission the body to do the work of ministry. That's why all of the fivefold ministry is described by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. That's what it's all about. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and leaders so that the congregation can serve them and give to them so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry. That's not what it says. It says, and God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry so that the church can be edified. David's mentality, King David's mentality and attitude of annoyance and irritation concerning his suffering was derived from the posture of glory. He was king. He, he was used to everyone bowing down to him and serving him. He was used, used to getting everything that he wanted and everything always went his way because he was the king and the people was going to make sure that was the way that it was. He was the one that everyone went around singing songs about. Saul has killed thousands and David has killed tens of thousands. Come on. You don't think that pumped people's head up? David was the one that was put on a pedestal. And he, they looked to him as the king to usher in and bring in the glory of God to the nation. He was one that everything rose and fell on. He was one that led with authority and power and command. Come on. This was the concept of the Old Testament. The elite, the privileged, the king, the prophet, the priest. They was the one that would come and present the glory of God to the people and to the nation. But it was Peter that rejoiced in the midst of his trial and he was not annoyed. He was not even irritated. Why? And yet Peter himself never gathered with the thousands. Follow his lifestyle. Look where Peter went. He didn't go to the throne. He went to the He was imprisoned. Woo! Are you watching this? While David sat on a throne, guard, uh, leading with a posture of glory, Peter went to a prison, beaten, whipped. Uh, persecuted on many occasions. People didn't want to be with Peter. They didn't go around following him and singing songs about Peter and yet Peter had a better attitude than that which David did. Why? The two testament theology is the theology of the cross. Let me show you the difference. The theology of the cross is the theology of weakness and powerlessness. It is one of defenselessness and vulnerability. In other words, let me put it like this. It's the one saying, I know we can't do it. The theology of the cross is one of confusion, abandonment, helplessness, and impotence. It is through the theology of the cross that we learn to form a deep, 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 deep dependence and reliance upon God. It's what we understand. Woo, thank God. The pressure's taken off of me and it's put on him. Amen. It's where our trust is truly in what Proverbs chapter 3 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes, own concepts, own beliefs, and own thinking. This is where we got to get to as a church. 
There is no superstars, no super studs. There is no powerful elite in the kingdom of God, in the true kingdom of God. Because no flesh shall glory in his presence. I want to tell you, the guy that travels the world over and does all these mighty works, thank God for him, and I'm not against him. And there are people that are able to do that, but I want to tell you, he has no greater reward than what you do. All of our righteousness is as filthy as rags. Say it with me. All of our righteousness is as filthy as rags. We have all become filthy according to the song. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's none of us in this building that have arrived to superstar status. I'm not your answer. I am not your Messiah. I am not your Savior. I'm your leader. I'm your shepherd. But I want to tell you something. I do not want to be put up on a pedestal that I don't belong because I want to tell you something. You put me off that pedestal, it'll be short-lived because I'll never meet the expectations that you put upon me. I'm incapable. I don't have the ability to do it. Can I have an amen? amen? It was Richard Hayes that said this. God has chosen to save the world through the cross, through the shameful and powerless death of the crucified Messiah. If that shocking event is the revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God, then her whole way of seeing the world is turned upside down. All values are, our values are transformed, he says, and God refuses to play games of the power and prestigious of human terms. Man, when he said that, I thought, wow, analyze that. The theology cross stands against glory and credit. Stands against it. It stands against ministerial motive driven by seeking honor and praise and affirmation and acceptance. Can I have an amen? Amen. Some want to be in the ministry just to start their own sense of low self-esteem and the spirit of intimidation that's been upon them their whole lives. They think, well, in order for me to overcome my stronghold that I've had all of my life, the spirit of intimidation that I've carried, that I must seek ministry in order to get affirmation, acceptance, and honor. They think ministry is always placed upon a pedestal not knowing that real ministry is not the limelight, it's the trench. It's the trenches. It's the foxholes of life. That's real ministry. It's the gutters. It's the hood. We got a wrong concept about what ministry is. Some think that the glory of God is reserved only for those who rise to an occasion. The so-called chosen, that's what they think. But we have to realize that the glory of God does not rise or fall on the theology of glory. But it is manifested through the theology of the Christ where every believer is chosen. You're chosen. You're special. You're the apple of God's eye. You're the pearl of great price. You're his children. You're the inheritance of God through Christ Jesus. Am I preaching all right? Good, I got another hour. Wanted to hear it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you want to experience and see and house the very glory of God? Come on, raise your hand. I want to see it. How many really want it? You really want it? Do you really want it? Can't hear you. Do you really want it? Okay, then Peter reveals us in our text that is in the context of suffering that you learn about the glory of God. The glory of God is manifested in the midst of suffering. Do you still want it? Now everybody wants to back out. Well, I didn't know I was going to get the glory of God that way. I thought you'd get me up and let me preach. I thought you'd let me get up and sing a good song in front of everybody. (laughs) Woo, but hey. Don't tell me to go down here in the prison. Amen. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be persecuted. And yet that's where Peter says, that's where you learn the glory of God. The cross was a place of shame and a public disgrace. It was a place of violence and injustice. It demands selflessness. The cross is the sense of weakness out of strength. Surrender as conquering. Powerlessness as power. Justice out of injustice. And peace in the face of violence. So this tells me in order for me to see God's glory then I have to allow the transformation of the cross turn my world upside down, flip it upside down. This is where if someone smites me on the right cheek, I don't punch them back with authority as a king. I give them the other one to punch as well. 
This is where I lose in order to gain. I become last so that I can become first. I become a servant so that I can be served. And I die that I might live. That's what leadership is. That's what a servant is. That's what the theology of the cross is. The theology of the cross requires me to embrace the theology of sacrifice as a central focal point of my life and my ministry. It is a call to give ourselves as living sacrifice and follow the footsteps of Jesus as chief shepherd, chief shepherd, leader, priest, and prophet. He turned the whole priesthood around, the prophet around. He turned it all around. His footsteps led into darkness where hate and viciousness and sin and rebellion fostered. He didn't come for those that are whole. He came for those that were sick. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. The theology of the cross will not seek center stage, but rather it will engage us into places where divine love is lacking. It does not seek the places with the prominent, the elite, the privileged, and the honor and the superior, but it will take us to the leper colonies, which was the place avoided in the day of Jesus Christ. It was a place of the outcast, the sick, the dying, the wounded, the sinful. Come on. And the theology of the cross produces a community of believers who do not primarily look what they can enjoy and what, they have, and what affirms them, but for what they can confer on the hostile and hurting and the desperate and the needy and the sick and the dying. It isn't about, oh, I gotta gain prominence in the church. It's saying, where is the sick and the hurting and the dying? I gotta engage myself as Christ engaged himself in the affairs of their lives. And as believers go into such dark places, guess what happened? they find themselves against the hostile forces. It's almost like we got the mentality of glory where we got this great kingdom. We're in power. We're in charge. We have this great authority and we hold our fort and the devil tries to come in and we got power to kick him out. Oh, and then we brag about kicking the devil out of the house of God. When in reality... The theology of the cross is not that we set in here as a bunch of prestigious people, honorable people, saved, redeemed people, ministering to ourselves all the time, but we march out those doors and we storm the gates of hell and the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. That we're not here on a... A defensive mode. We're on the offense. Can I have an amen? And we're here, and when we go out and start doing the will of the Lord, start following the theology of the cross, we'll face great persecution. We'll enter into the same kind of sufferings that Jesus entered into. There'll be mockings, ridicule, persecution, rejection, manipulation, extortion. If we're not careful, we'll come by crying about all what we're going through. But in so doing, as we go out and begin to involve ourselves in the affairs of Christ, that's when Christ's true glory will be revealed to us. That's when God's glory comes down and rests upon us. We think true glory is having a good service and seeing God bless and touch and people pass out and run the aisles and all. That's just a taste of glory divine. But where people see the real glory of God is in the midst of the devil's den where it's needed the most. Can I have an amen? amen? The glory of God is revealed in the midst of suffering. That is due to the call to the theology of the cross. When we enter into such places, we become reproached for the name of Christ. And it is here that the spirit of glory and God begins to really rest upon us if you be reproached for the name of Christ, he says, happy, say happy. happy. Hey, how many want to be happy? Happy, 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 happy. Amen. Happy are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. How can that be? Peter had learned the art. Man, I'm dead to myself. And I'll go into the devil's den and the devil reproaches me and rebukes me and fights and opposes and ridicules and mocks and laughs and tricks me and beats up on me and all that. But I just sit and take it because there's a greater purpose behind what I'm going through than what the underlining eye can see. Therefore, I'm able to endure the persecution with joy because I see the end result. 
You can rejoice in the midst of suffering when it has a purpose tied to it. I want to tell you, you're walking in good footsteps when you're walking in the midst of the same sufferings and temptations that Jesus Christ, your example, did. David could not rejoice in the midst of his trial because he was leading from the posture of glory and not the cross. He was trying to meet all the people's expectation. He was coming short to his intended goals and his objectives. His ability to succeed and to achieve was vanishing. Oh, my. His measuring success was measured on the premise of glory, grandeur, power, authority, command, and prestige. And the problem with the theology of glory, you, you will never be able to sustain or maintain the level of expectation that it puts upon your life. Notice this. You may be a good fighter, but there's always somebody that's going to come and be better and knock your block off. Amen? You may be talented and gifted, but there's going to be somebody that's going to rise up that's going to be more talented and gifted than you are. So therefore, if, you're, if you are tied up to this glory stuff, you're going to die a miserable Christian. And your ministry and your fame will be short-lived. Amen? You'll always come up short. You'll, you'll never be able to produce enough to satisfy we see the rise and falls of spiritual empires all the time, don't we? Where people have a good run for it, maybe 10 years, 20 years, maybe even 30 years. Then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, it collapses. Why does it collapse? Because it was built all on fame and glory and all that, and the people that were sustaining it got old and wore out and couldn't handle it no more, and they couldn't meet the, meet the needs of the, and the expectations of the people, and it literally just died and filtered out. Amen? In the midst of suffering caused by the theology of the cross, we can be happy because it's no longer about us, it's about him. Now watch this, and I'm going to close. Maybe. Everybody says, you lie, so I'm going to put a maybe on there. <laughs> Amen? Never know what the Lord might say. We're no longer in charge when we have the theology of the cross, but he's in charge. The foundation in which things built upon is not upon a selected elite group, it's upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I love what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I love that passage. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ liveth within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. I quoted that slow. Praise the name of the Lord. I didn't think I was going to because my mind kept speeding up on me. But Paul revealed that it's not about us trying to obtain the theology of glory, but it's about us trying to obtain the true sense of the theology of the cross. It is not our life improved that matters. It's his life imputed that matters. It's not about us learning to become more like Jesus Christ, but rather it is our weakness declaring precisely just the opposite. It is our inability to be like Jesus that allows Jesus to be himself in us and live his life through us and not we live our own lives as we try to pattern after Jesus. Jesus don't want you copying him. He wants you to die so he can live for you. Did you hear that? He wants to live his life through you. Praise the name of the Lord. We understand that our works is done out of weakness. We're earthen vessels. How many heard the apostle Paul? Out of our weakness, he's made strong. We come to understand it is up, it's not up to us to make things happen. The battle's not ours. The battle's the Lord's. The produced results and the desired goals is not reliant upon our own human abilities to keep them, maintain them, to make them happen. But it sets upon the premise of the Holy Spirit. It's not by power nor by, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, hope things are done. This makes us free from all expectations. It was Jesus that said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's the one that's gonna build his church. He's the author. He's the finisher of it. And now due to me being free, when my suffering appears, I can rejoice because the glory of the Lord is gonna rest upon me. I don't have to meet certain goals, expectations, demands in order to achieve the glory Jesus Christ has achieved it for me on the cross. Look at verse 13 and 14. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is trial used. Oh, some strange that's going to happen to you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory will be revealed, 
you may be glad with exceedingly joy. My trial, my weakness, my failure does not take glory away from me, but rather it is a tool that God uses to give me access to his favor and his glory. Don't wait to meet certain expectations. Don't wait till will you get to a certain level before you're able to engage yourself in, in allowing God to use you and minister through you and to touch you. Just do it through the theology of the cross and not through the theology of glory. Quit trying to meet these expectations and quit trying to arise to a certain level and quit looking at everybody else as better than you are and more capable than you are. You'll always live beneath and not above. You'll always never meet the standard. You'll finally grow and you won't even recognize your growth because the more that you grow, the more that you begin to think, well, you know what? I, you, you don't see your own growth. You, don't, you know, it's just like my little grandson. Uh, everybody had the flu in their home and it was several weeks before I got to see him. And when I see him, I thought, my goodness, this child has grown. Well, to them, he hadn't grown because they sit there and stared at it all the time. And when we do grow, we don't even recognize it and we'll never arrive to our potential. Why? Because we'll always feel less than, less than, less than. And quit trying to compare yourself to everybody else. Look what they do. Look what this is. It don't matter what they're doing. What matters is, is that you're a candidate. You are a candidate to experience the glory of God by opening your life and saying, it's not up for me to do it. Let me relax. Let me be a child of God. Let me enter in to the theology of the cross. Let me do, let me go, let me say, let me do all the things that Christ did and let him work through me. Because in my ability, I don't have the ability. I can't, I can't never grow up into it. I can't never reach the high expectation. It's not about that. It's about me just being dead and recognize my inability and his ability. My lack and his strength. Come on. Hallelujah. We can't do it out of the arm of flesh anyway. I want you to reverence me. I want you to respect me as a leader, but I don't want you to put me up on a pedestal. I don't want you to blow me out of proportion. I want you to support me. I want to have a, be able to make a living for my family, but I don't need your millions so I can travel the world and do your job. That ain't what Kent Miller's about. Kent Miller's about this, the theology of the cross of Jesus Christ who died, who went into the hell and got the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He rose on the third day to sit at the right hand of the Father, to be intercessor for you and I as our high priest. Now whosoever will can approach him in our weakness and find strength and help in our time of need. Would you stand with me, please? The theology of the cross. There's some of you here today that's just being beat up, never arriving, never achieving, never getting to the level that you want to get, always depressed, always beat down, intimidated. And honestly, some of you got some bad attitudes. They think they're better than I am. They're more holy goat, they're more holier than thou people. I'm never asked to do anything. Da, da, da. That, you know, them kinds of things go on in the body of Christ. All because they're connected and their lives is controlled by a theology of glory. As if it's the job of the body somehow to validate them. Amen? There's some people that are, are, are bitter towards the church because the church never gives them a chance to do ministry or the church never gives them a chance to become a part of the upper elite. The church never gives them a chance. Come on. You know what Jesus did? Jesus just poured 12 in around him and you know what he done? He then released him and said, now get away from me. Go out. They done the work of the mystery. They gathered 70. Then the 70 turned into 120. After the day of Pentecost, it turned into several thousands over one man's preaching. They turned the world upside down through the theology of the cross. And I ask you today, if you're hurting, been mixed up, been caught in all this confusion, there is glory for you at the foot of the cross. You want to experience the glory of God? It's at the foot of the cross where you just come and admit, huh, huh, I'm weak, 
David, David had to come to that conclusion, didn't he? I can't do this. I'm about to die. Look at the stress that you put on me as king. And all along, God didn't want him to have to do all that nonsense. He was ruling out of a posture of glory. The success of the palace of praise ain't up to Kent Miller. Woo, praise God. I remember one of the hardest lessons that I ever had in my life. I was running like a chicken with its head cut off. Everybody says, well, what kind of terminology is that? That's the only terminology you're going to get from a country boy. Those of you that's never cut a chicken's head off and watch it bounce around for a while, you don't know what I'm talking about. Those of you that's been on a farm know what I'm talking about. And it's a chicken jumping around with his head cut off, and I felt like that's how I was. My head was cut off, and I'm just jerking around, going through the motion, nothing happening, and I'm losing my life. Finally, Jenny looked at me one day years ago, and she pointed that little finger at me and that little five-foot almost one. Looking at a six-foot, three-inch man who weighs close to her. I better back that up. She may take that wrong. Three times, four times heavier than her. She come up with that bony little finger and pointed it in my chest. She couldn't reach up her where she wanted to probably. She's pecking on that chest. And I want you to know something, Kit Miller. It's time that you understand you're not the church's Messiah. You're not their Savior. Man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was chasing, I was running, I was going, I was tired, I was fatigued. I, I, I was trying to win everybody, save everybody, patch everybody's marriage up, patch everybody's house up, trying to help their kids get in, connected, doing everything I knew to do. Marrying, burying, counseling, I was doing it all. Finally, she come up to me and she pointed that little finger and said, I want you to know you're not their Messiah. You're not their Savior. Jesus is. And if you want the glory of God, don't wait for me to preach it down or try to preach it down because you'll sit and you'll never be satisfied. Find the glory for yourself through the theology of the cross. The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. He is in the one in whom all glory dwells. And when you come to know him in the fellowship with his sufferings, you identify with him in a way that glory comes. You, don't even, you, can't, you can't even imagine it. There's been times when the heaviest trials have been on me and when I've been in the right frame of mind, I've been like David many, many, many times and probably still will be in the future if I don't keep a head straight. But I want to tell you something. There's been times where I've been able to just laugh in the face of my adversary and just, just be tickled to death at what I'm going through because it's all done in the frame of the cross and Jesus visits me with divine glory. Divine glory. In the midst of hardship, I receive peace. In the midst of trial, I receive confidence. It's because the glory rests upon you. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're hurting, confused, beat up, I want to deal with this thing called spirit of intimidation. I think it's rampant in the body of Christ. I think it's rampant. And if you take the spirit of intimidation over in the ministry with you, it's always about validation, always about feeling important. It's all about, in other words, the ministry feeding you instead of you being a real minister and getting in the trenches and dying out and feeling the pain of suffering that Jesus felt and getting into the right mode and the reason for ministry. Amen? Everybody that gets on stage to minister, I want them to be crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not them living, but Christ living through them. I want Jesus to be able to flow out of them. It's not about attention, affirmation, acceptance, of, uh, being affirmed, being edified, being put on a pedestal, being somehow in the, in the elite. There is no elite around the palace of praise. We're on equal ground at Calvary. All of us. With every eye closed and every head bowed just for one second. As you're hurting people here this morning. Is there people that feel like I'll never match up? I'll never arrive. I'll never succeed. I'll never get to the plateau. I'll never get to the platform of maturity to where I can experience God in the way other people experience God. That's a lie, my friend. That's a lie. God loves you, and he wants to minister to you, but he wants you to understand 
It's not about what you can give to him. It's about what he can give to you. It's not about your works. It's not about your performance. It's not about all of the stuff that you're trying to do to earn the favor of God. The favor of God's been earned for you through the cross where Jesus went and, he, and all the handwritings of ordinances against you is nailed to the cross. And now that it is Christ that intercedes on your behalf. And now you have access to the throne of God to where you find favor with the Lord. It's the cross. Is there anybody here this morning that say, Brother Miller, I'm fighting this spirit of intimidation. I'm fighting this life of low self-esteem. I'm fighting this life of condemnation, guilt, fear. I'm fighting this this, this, uh, the spirit of expectation. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm through. I'm done. You know, it's hard to admit that we're going through that. Folks, I'll admit I've been there several times. But you'll never get victory over it until you bring it to the foot of the cross and you just hand it over to the Lord. Is there anybody here this morning? I'm not going to hold long. I'm not going to hold this congregation. Is there anybody this morning want to respond in Jesus' name? Then I challenge you as a body. Go out of here. Get involved in the trenches. Quit coming in here looking for the glory of God. Go out and find the glory of God and bring a part of that glory back into the church with you. In Jesus' name, may the Lord bless you. May he shine upon you. May he keep you and may the glory of God visit you in a most wonderful, powerful way. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I need some altar workers up here, please.